everybody want to turn over to the book of Acts and uh, what we've been studying, for those of you here the first time tonight, this is our fourth lesson on the Holy Spirit. And we started, and I handed up to tonight, I've handed out outlines each time. And the first thing we did on the first lesson was note the some differences between the church today and the church of the first century. And we pointed out that these differences need to be noted because a lot of times today when people read the Bible, they will read it today as if they were in the first century receiving this message. And, there, and then these people that initially read these letters and experienced what we are seeing them experience, they, they had completely different situations in, in, in which we have today. Number one, we noted, today we have the completed Bible, all the Old New Testament scriptures. They did not have that. They had what we call the Old Testament scriptures. And then they were getting these individual letters written by the apostles, and all of the apostles would die, and there still would be no church that had all the letters of the New Testament. And we have the completed thing. Next, uh, we noted that during the time that you're reading these letters, the apostles are alive. And there are at least some of the apostles alive during the time that all these letters are written. Well, there's no apostles alive today. We noted also that they were written at a time when there were a lot of other eyewitnesses in the church. There's no eyewitnesses today alive of, of the resurrection of Christ. In the same way, we noted that the apostles, and we'll see this today, that they had the authority to lay hands on people and impart miraculous gifts. And the apostles are not here, and they're not, not alive. And that there are no, there are no people today uh, who are going around with the same authority and, and can lay hands on people and impart these miraculous gifts. Next, we noted that in the following lesson, that all through the Old Testament, that any time that God spoke to a certain people, a certain person, and he was guided by the Holy Spirit, that God always marked that person in some way so that they could know that message was from the Holy Spirit. It may be a miracle, it may be prophecy in its fulfillment. But there never was a time when God just expected that a person was, was speaking under the guidance of the Holy Spirit without evidence. In other words, we don't find prophets that just preached and everybody knew that this was the Word of God. It was the fact that it was fulfilled, there was the miraculous, and then we noted something else, that whatever message they give, gave always had to be harmonious with what had been given before. And they were actually taught to challenge a message and make sure that it was harmonious with the law of Moses. And so a Jew would not have embraced anything, even if somebody claimed, deceived him with a miracle, he would not have embraced anything that was out of harmony with the teaching of the law of Moses. So the revelation was, was always harmonious with whatever had come before. There was always the confirmation of either prophecy and its fulfillment or the miraculous. At no time do we have individuals who are expected to believe that something is of God just because somebody claims that he's speaking of God. In fact, let me hold your place right here. 
flip back to the Old Testament to Jeremiah and, and note it, it was just really the opposite that uh, God actually encouraged and told them through the prophets to, to challenge whatever was preached by the prophets. Jeremiah, I believe it's 23rd chapter. Twenty-nine, twenty-three, and then beginning with verse uh, sixteen. Uh, Mark, will you start reading there, please? Beginning with verse sixteen, and just read on down till I ask you to pause, please. Okay. This is what the Lord Almighty says: Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says, you will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say, no harm will come to you. But which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or to hear his word? Who has listened and heard his word? See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a whirlwind swinging down on the heads of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. In days to come, you will understand it clearly. I did not send these prophets, yet they have run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and would have turned them from their evil ways and from their evil deeds. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. I have heard what the prophets say who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long will this continue in the hearts of these lying prophets who prophesy the delusions of their own minds? They think the dreams they tell one another will make my people forget my name, just as their fathers forgot my name through Baal worship. Let the prophet who has a dream tell his dream, but let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. For what has straw to do with grain, declares the Lord. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? Therefore, declares the Lord, I am against the prophets who steal from one another words supposedly from me. Yes, declares the Lord, I am against the prophets who wag their own tongues, and yet declare the Lord declares. Indeed, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, declares the Lord. They tell them and lead my people astray with their reckless lies, yet I did not spend or send or appoint them. They do not benefit these people in the least, declares the Lord. Okay, now that will go on, on more, and he tells, uh, and he makes it clear all the way through how they tell the difference, you know, between the false and true. But the point I wanted to make, that's just one example. All through history, there have been men who stood up and, and prophesied and told their dreams and said they were speaking of God and God prophesied through them. And the question is, if how do they how do people are to know? If if people were to believe just because somebody said something, then there would never be any way to protect yourself against a false prophet. But they were to challenge them. And number one, everything a prophet said had to be in perfect harmony with what had been revealed by God through other prophets. In other words, that, that there could be no compromise with the morality or anything like that. Also, the prophet, everything he said came to pass. Now, in this case with Jeremiah, Jeremiah is telling the people that their city is going to be destroyed and they're going to be carried into captivity 
and that they need, the only way they can stop it is to repent. And it's because of the wickedness of their lives that they're going to be destroyed. Well, the prophets among the people are saying, don't listen to Jeremiah. Uh, the enemy will not come in here. The temple of God is in Jerusalem. God's not going to let anything happen to his temple. We are the people of God. And so the people continued sinners, sinning. The prophets were a bunch of sinners. That were, and by the way, you say, well, why are the false prophets? Well, see, the prophets got their support, financial support from the people. And so the people want to hear what they want to hear. And so the way they kept their financial support is, support is simply to tell the people what they wanted to hear. And it was that simple. I mean, they didn't do it for, for just no reason whatsoever. They made, they made their living. And so Jeremiah then is preaching. Well, as a result of listening to the false prophets, they beat up Jeremiah. They dipped him in mud. They threw him in jail. But the vindication came the day Nebuchadnezzar came to town. And when Nebuchadnezzar comes and Jerusalem is destroyed and their temple burned down and everything, then all the words of the prophet Jeremiah were fulfilled. Well, after that, then they began to exalt Jeremiah as a prophet. Now, you and I have as part of the Bible Jeremiah. At the time Jeremiah was actually preaching, most of the Jews rejected him. But the reason they wound up reverencing him and, and receiving him as a prophet is that all these things he said came to pass and the, everything the false prophet said actually came right back at them. But, but at the time he spoke, uh, the majority of the people actually re rejected him. And the point being again that God has never just spoken a message and expected people to believe it without any confirmation whatsoever. This, this uh, nonsense of people standing up and saying the Holy Spirit told them to say something and, and they've had a dream and everything like that, and then they tell it like it's from God and expect you to believe it and all, that's nonsense. It's never happened before, and, and anything that God has ever wanted anybody to believe, he's always given evidence and proof so that they can know it was from God. Hi there. <laughs> Made it in when you buy yourself? Do you remember Charity? Carol? Okay. See, see, this is Charity. She is from a phone that you Okay. So we noted those principles in the Old Testament. And then we noted uh, the, the last time that when we looked at the Holy Spirit in the Gospels, that number one, did the apostles. During the ministry of Jesus, did the apostles have the Holy Spirit? Yes. They did? During, no. when? During the ministry now? No. no. Okay. Now they were going to remember the Holy Spirit was promised, and they were going to receive the Holy Spirit. You mean when Jesus was here? Right, when Jesus was here. Okay. No, they didn't. Okay, they, it was something promised they were going to receive. Now, what, was, what did Jesus say the Holy Spirit was supposed to do for them? Teach them all truth. Okay. Teach them all truth. Bring to their remembrance things that, that he had taught them. That was that was going to be the function. Now, so we're in agreement that the Holy Spirit has not been poured out on the apostles up until we get here to the book of Acts, right? Okay. Now, the Holy Spirit's not been poured out on the apostles. Did the apostles, as, as we come to the book of Acts, do they believe that Jesus is the Son of God and He's been raised from the dead? Yes. 
Okay? So in other words, there was nothing from the Holy Spirit in some mystical way that caused them to believe this. Why did they believe that Jesus was the Son of God and had been raised from the dead? He said he was going to do it, and he did it. Okay, look at the first few verses in Acts 1. Uh, uh, beginning with verse 3, it says, After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive and appeared to them over a period of 40 days. So they come to believe as a result of convincing proofs, right? Okay, now, had these apostles repented before now, before they received the Holy Spirit? Yes. Okay, because we know that John, that they were baptized by John the Baptist, and John was preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven's hand. In fact, we know John well enough to know that he wouldn't, John was stricter than any of us would be scared to be today. He wouldn't baptize anybody unless he was convinced that they repented. And he made some pretty strong statements to people who wanted to be baptized and had been repented. And remember what he said, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from wrath to come. Go do works meet for repentance. So we know they repented, and we know they believed in Jesus as the Son of God, and they had acknowledged him. All right, now all I'm pointing this out for is to show you don't need some special working of the Holy Spirit on your mind to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and to repent of your sins. The apostles to this point do not have the Holy Spirit, and yet they repented of their sins and they believed. Have they been baptized? They were all baptized. And, and so then, so what did they need the Holy Spirit for to, to, to cause them to believe, to do something mystical to their minds so they could repent, to regenerate them in some mystical way? Or did they need the Holy Spirit to guide them into truth and bring to the remembrance what Jesus said? Okay. And remember, he referred to the Holy Spirit. We said that the word in the King James called the Spirit a comforter is really not the best translation of that word. The newer rendering in the in the like the NIV of counselor, C-O-U-N-S-E-L, that like a lawyer being your counselor, that really is the accurate rendering of that word. And what he was saying is the Holy Spirit will be your counselor. And so uh, when you have a counselor or lawyer, he tells you how to answer the questions. And you check with your lawyer before you answer questions in every way. Well, Jesus had served as our counselor while he was here. But he was leaving, and now the counselor was going to come. And notice he said it will be better for you. Well, when Jesus was here, the information was confided to his fleshly body. And so anytime they got very far from Jesus and they're preaching, they, they had to go back. And they got some questions they couldn't handle. They had to go back to Jesus. But now the Holy Spirit was going to come to their mind. And, and whenever they needed the information, they would be empowered. And that's, and that's all that when you read about power and the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean power in the sense they could lift a building or anything like that. It meant that they were God empowered them at that moment in time so that they speak. They, they now have memory of whatever they need to say and, and whatever further teaching, God has given them the information. So just like I read the information right now and get it in my mind so it can come out of my mouth, the only difference was the Holy Spirit was giving them the information. And then they were speaking it. And then as they spoke it, people have got a problem. What's that problem? 
Here they are speaking the Word of God, guided by the Holy Spirit, but what problem do I have as I'm listening to them? How do you know it's not them talking and that it's really from God? Right. I mean, just listen to what they're saying. Uh, here's, a, here's a guy that is son of a carpenter that's lived in flesh and blood among them for 33 years, and they're saying that uh, not only has he been raised from the dead, but he's God incarnate. That's a lot to swallow. I mean, Jesus, the Nazarene, the carpenter, that's, that's God. God incarnate. Uh, and, and you killed him, and he's raised from the dead. And, and, and somebody thinks that you can just say that to somebody and they believe it. And see, the, sad, and the reason I emphasize this, I think the saddest thing in Christianity is that one of the reasons we've got so many unbelievers in our country now is because that's exactly what we got doing. We've got Christians that go around and they talk to unbelievers and they say, let Jesus come into your heart and save you. Uh, well, what's going to happen? Well, he's the son of God. He's been raised from the dead. And then what they, what they think is happening is that the Holy Spirit in some mystical way is, re is supposed to regenerate that person's mind so that he can believe. And so, if he, and then if the person doesn't believe, it's because he's resisting the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not the way it was. The Holy Spirit's job was to empower the spokesman with the message. But then the message had to have the evidence behind it. And just like we read here, they came to believe Jesus as a result of many convincing proofs. Okay, now, the Holy Spirit is poured out here in the book of Acts on the apostles. And we come on down, look at chapter 2. The day of Pentecost came. Uh, to show you we're speaking of the apostles at first, uh, you can see Mathis is numbered with the apostles in verse 23. Okay, he's, he's mentioned there. And then in verse 26, they cast lots. The lot fell on Mathis. He was Matthias. He was added to the 11 apostles. Forget about that chapter 2 and verse 1. Remember, chapters and verses are, are, are put in afterwards. Luke didn't write in chapters and verses. He just wrote the material. We come along and divide it up in chapters and verses to have a handy reference. But all he says that he's added to the 11 apostles. Then the next statement is when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly the sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Okay, notice in verse 5, there's Jews from every nation under heaven gathered there. It's the Pentecost. This is one of the three times of the year, the ingathering, when they came home to Jerusalem. The other, one of the other two times was the Passover. When they heard the sound, a crown gathered, and look how they're uttered in verse uh, uh, 6, each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were utterly amazed. And they said, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hear them in our own language? So what is the gift of tongues here in Acts 2? Okay, they, they speak in the languages. And notice, there, there, is there a practical reason for this gift here? Okay, these people have come from all nations. They have their, their language. And, and these guys are going to present a message, and God doesn't have time to send them to a language school. <laughs> and and so, so they're speaking, in the, and, and everybody is hearing in their own language, 
But then God's doing something. He's doing two things. They needed the communication, but then he's using it for evidence. And so they're amazed. They're, they're astounded. And so they, they began to now, now they've got their attention. All right? After they get their attention and they say, hey, they're, they're saying that these guys have to be speaking from God. You know, look at these tremendous things happening. Think of miracles as, as highlighting something, that you just like you take a yellow highlighter and you highlight something that, like you want it to stand out. Well, this is what miracles do, that here's a message that God wants people to listen to. And so how does he get their attention? You know, well, he highlights it. And the way he highlights it is with a miracle. And so just think of the, the important thing is the message, not the highlighting. It really don't matter what language they spoke it in. The important thing is the message. But how do you get people's attention? How do you get them to know that it's from God? The miracle highlights the message. It makes it stand out. It grabs their attention. It amazes them and convinces them that, hey, I'm listening to something from God. Okay, he goes ahead, and I'm not going to read that sermon, and it's all. We're just going to come to the conclusion. But in the sermon... He, first of all, quotes a prophecy. And he said, "This what you're seeing is the fulfillment of Prophet Joel. Well, remember we said that truth was harmonious. They could go back and, and yell, Joel said something that sounded a whole lot like what's happening right here. Then he calls him back to another prophecy where David spoke of a man that would die and his spirit would not remain in Hades and his body would not see corruption. Well, they had applied that to David, although they never fully understood it. Well, Peter then looks him right in the face and he says, Listen, you know David couldn't be speaking of himself because he's dead and his, his bones are buried right over there. Go check his grave. He's not speaking of himself. That he spe He's a prophet of God and he's speaking of the Messiah that's to come. So then all of them give their eyewitness account of the resurrections of Christ. They've showed he's fulfilled the prophecy. They give their eyewitness account. There's the miraculous there. And remember, the miracle highlighted the event. But notice what pricked their heart. In verse 37, we conclude the sermon. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the prophets, What shall we do? Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, or Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now, pause there. What was it that pricked their heart? The message. The message. What did the miracle do? Confirmed it. Okay, confirmed it and highlighted the message itself. Uh, were they expected to repent and be baptized before they received the gift of the Holy Spirit? Uh, uh, which yes. one? The right here, right here uh -huh. in this cup. Okay, they did. So, in other words, that there was nothing about the Holy Spirit that, in some mystical sense, helped these people believe, or repent, or be baptized. Now, the reason I point that out is that in all Christendom, and this originates with John Calvin, there is the teaching that man is totally depraved. And he's incapable of good. And then, before he can be saved, the Holy Spirit, in some mystical way, has to come into his heart and regenerate his mind. And then he can understand the message and all. 
And my problem with that is, is, you know, people do the right thing even though they may misunderstand the mechanics. But people who have this conception have the belief that they can convert people to Christ by just tell them to let Jesus come into their heart or be receptive to the Spirit. And that's why that sometimes groups will have a mourner's bench or something like that where they're praying for the Holy Spirit to come into that person and all. Well then, so what happens though, my concern with my background is the guy out here that is a, an unbeliever and who does read and study and, and deals with science and history and things like that. And he's looking at that and he's saying, there, there's no evidence there at all. And, and, and that these people are just, and he comes to a service like that. And I know because I've gone to those services what he feels. He's thinking these people are just getting emotionally worked up. And then after, then after they get them emotionally worked up, they tell them that that emotion is caused by the Holy Spirit. And then they take that as their evidence and they go ahead and believe and, re believe and repent. The point is they're believing and repenting. But they've been misled on the evidence that's behind it. And, and in, the, in the real situation, the evidence was miraculous, and it was prophecy in its fulfillment, and it was a plurality of people given an eyewitness account. And their, and their, their God-given intelligence evaluated that information and made the decision to repent and to believe. And so the important difference to me is that a proper understanding of this causes us to make our appeal to a person's mind with evidence. Uh, not seeing that causes us to go after a person's emotion, thinking that you don't even need any evidence for his mind, and, and trying to tell him that, that if in some mystical way he can just re quit resisting, the Holy Spirit will regenerate his mind in some way. Does everybody see the difference on what we're talking about there and the importance of it? and and, uh, and they'll say, well, what about these people that go into certain places and they just tell them to believe in Jesus and they, and they believe? Well, there's several things there. Number one, they are doing that in America, in a country where people have been taught about Jesus all their life. You know, and and, and they, they already have certain beliefs about Jesus. And they may have come in contact with the Gospels. They may have known people in their family that were Christian. They all may already be attracted to them in some way. And so because of that, they're actually taking advantage of some past beliefs and understandings that's there. But I guarantee you, if they were to go talk to a Muslim and, and or an atheist or an infidel and just simply tell that person to believe, it would never happen. In other words, if it's the Holy Spirit in some mystical way that's doing this, why doesn't he work on atheists and Muslims in the same way he works on these people that have a you know different type background. What about the people that that are down at the mourners bench and they and they don't really feel this? But those poor people think that they've been lost. They think they've got. To, that's a good point. They, so I've heard they say that they were seeking that they prayed and prayed and were seeking the Holy Spirit. So what? What if they keep thinking, well, I haven't gotten it, you know? Well, that's why sometimes I've been in the services where people prayed for hours. But see, a lot, most of the time they're going to receive because your mind operates on the basis of what you believe. And just like if I tell you that somebody you love is dead, and you believe that, I call you up to, you're going to cry. 
okay? Then somebody else can call you and say, hey, that he was lying to you. He's a liar. So your mind will feel in keeping with your belief whether or not it's so. And so this person that goes to the mourner's bench, they obviously already have an element of belief or they wouldn't go there, right? I mean, I can't see a total unbeliever. Going. Yeah. And so they want to believe and they have an element of belief. And so what happens is their emotions respond because they, they, they do believe. But then when they respond, they, they've been told that it's the Holy Spirit that is causing this. And so there's a misunderstanding of, of the mechanics involved. And sometimes, though, people go to the bench, mourner's bench, or in a situation like that, and they don't get any special feeling. And so then they, sometimes they may come back and try several times. Barbara and I met a man in Adams, Tennessee one time. Uh, he was the husband of a lady that was a Christian there, and he had just quit going to church completely. He was brought up in the primitive Baptist, and they taught, the primitive Baptist teach that you're predetermined to be saved or lost, and at the right time, God will call you. And so anyway, he, he couldn't have any experience. He just didn't have it. And so he was just simply of the conclusion that he was not one of the saved. Oh, and, called. and he lived with that. And then he, he mentioned what a relief it was to find out that God calls through the message, not, not through something uh, mystical, but he calls through the message and that you can respond to if you want to. But it actually, he actually went around for years with the belief that uh, he just simply was not one of the called. Okay, now, this will become the, the concept is going to become important later on because we, do we all acknowledge based on what we've uh, seen so far that you can come to believe and you can repent of your sins based on your own mind and emotions and conscience that, uh, that you can evaluate evidence, you can have feelings, you can decide you need to repent, and you can actually repent based on all of that. Uh, is there anything spiritually more difficult that we're now going to be asked to do than repent and believe? So far as the mind itself, is there anything more difficult coming up than to, than to actually repent, believe that Jesus is the Son of God, raised from the dead, put your trust in Him for your salvation, repent of your sins, uh, change your mind about, sin, about sins. Is there anything more complex or difficult that we've got a lot to learn now as we go through the New Testament, but are we ever going to come into anything that's any more complex or any more difficult than that? I can't think of anything. I honestly cannot think. Some of the things we call complex or difficult is simply because we maybe haven't studied it as much as something else. Or it may be something that we don't have as much information on or something of that nature. But I can't think of a, another concept that's any more difficult than what's involved in coming to believe in Jesus and put your trust in him and to repent of your sins. And the point is, we do this without the Holy Spirit doing anything mystical to our mind. But what did the Holy Spirit do for the whole process? He highlighted the, the information. The miraculous confirmed the information. Okay, so continue on down. And uh, after we find that statement, look at verse uh, uh, 42 and 3. Uh, Nancy, you want to read those? verses, please. In chapter 2. 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Okay. Is it obvious in those two verses, these people now, a lot of them have already been baptized, right? Verse 41, those that accepted the message were baptized. 3,000 read. But isn't that pretty obvious that the apostles were somebody special? That uh, they, uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, let's go back up to verse 38 when it says they were to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Whatever was involved in receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit did not negate their needing the apostles' teaching. And then, uh, and then we have them filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs done by the apostles. So obviously, whatever has transpired, there's something short there in them than of the apostles because they're not standing in awe of one another. They're standing in awe of the apostles. And many miracles are being done by the apostles, and they're staying within the apostles' teaching. So whatever is involved in that receiving of the gift of the Holy Spirit doesn't negate the fact they need the teaching of the apostles and they need the miracles to confirm that teaching and that they're standing in awe of the apostles in some way. Okay, now, what is that <coughs> gift? In Acts 2.38, they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, I think we got a couple of choices as we answer that question. Uh, if you read a letter and it said Mark broke his leg, you can stop right there and we could all begin to speculate on how Mark broke his leg and how many ways can he break his leg. All different kinds of ways, right? <laughs> he can ride a horse, he can fall on skates, he'd be in a car wreck. There's a multitude of ways he can break his leg. There is no way that you can, you can read a letter which says that Mark broke his leg and then you know how he broke his leg. You just know he broke his leg. So we don't do that kind of thing, do we? When we're reading letters from one another and a person says something like that, we don't just stop our letter and say, now let me figure out now. I just want to see. Uh, and, and over here in this other paragraph, it says Mark was, was, uh, was riding a bicycle. And, and this paragraph over here, it says that uh, he was thinking about riding a bicycle. And then there was a paragraph over here that said there was a bump in the road. And now let's see. Uh, I think if we put all that together, Mark in all probability got on the bicycle and, and hit the bump and, and, and broke his leg. We don't reason that way. Uh, we, we don't go back. It says he, he, that he broke his leg, and, and we keep reading thinking maybe they'll tell us how he broke his leg. And so I suggest to you that if, all, if the passage stopped right here and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit, I don't know what happened. I know that the apostles are, have been guided into a message here. I know it's been confirmed by the miraculous. I know that these people are standing in all of them. And, and I know they've been told they'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what exactly the gift of the Holy Spirit is, I don't know. In fact, you can even look at gift of the Holy Spirit in a couple of different ways. If you receive the farm of John Brown, do you receive John Brown or the farm? Okay. So I'm saying, it, was it the Holy Spirit they received, or was it the gift of the Holy Spirit? 
the gift. Okay, but I'm saying that you're, you've got a, uh, that we're going to see where the scriptures will use it both ways. But, but I'm saying that from this one verse, we really don't know, do we, on the thing. And I agree with what you're saying. I agree with exactly what you're saying, Jim, that it is. He's saying just what it says. That it is, yeah. right. That's exactly, that it is the gift of the, of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now, so we just continue to read. But and we see next, the apostles. The next verse says that everybody after that, too, will receive the Holy mm -hmm. Spirit. Right. And the yeah. question is, what did they receive? Right? Yeah. Okay. That's what, right. There, everybody, I believe everybody, they talked to the people there and they said, repent, be baptized, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we know that they're getting the gift of the Holy Spirit. What we don't know is exactly what they're getting, right? And, and how they're getting it. You know, that we just know they're getting the whole gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, we continue on. We'll come on down to the sixth chapter. And uh, here we have a lot of people have been converted to now. And we have the apostles uh, picking out seven people. Look at uh, beginning with verse uh, five uh, through six. Uh, Jim, that uh, Acts six, five and six. Would you read that, please? And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith of the Holy Ghost, and Philip and. Your guess is as good as theirs, Jim. So. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Won't you try those fathers are hard? Can you pronounce it? Prochorus. Prochorus. And Nicanor, and Timon, and Hermes. <laughs> Jim, I didn't do that on purpose. <laughs> Nicholas, okay. Maniac. Yeah. Jim won't even speak to me anymore. That's the site of of Antioch. Did you say five and six? Uh huh whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. Okay, so these seven men are picked, they prayed, they laid their hands on them, and one of them is Philip, right? Yes. Okay, so let's remember that. We run it, we just keep going and we... Well, this says that Stephen already had the Holy Spirit, or full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, but then they laid hands on him. Right, right, he was full of the, right, full of the Holy All right, now, Another thing to remember as you're reading this, when we look at the context, anytime you see Holy Spirit, our spirit, capitalized, it's the discretion of the translator, whether they capitalize it or don't capitalize it, okay? In other words, the word holy, if you're looking at parts of speech, what is the word holy when you use Holy Spirit? Adjective. It's an adjective. The only thing that can make it holy is God. Right, but I'm saying the word holy, right, it, it's a, if you say a, he's a holy person. It's a description. Uh-huh, it's a description. So what we really have is is the word spirit, and it's being described in terms of, of being holy, okay? Now, when you come to, to people, uh, forget about the Holy Spirit. We have a spirit, right? God is the father of our spirits, Hebrews 12 and verse 9. And, and, and so I'm saying that, that we have, we also have a spirit, and Paul will deal a whole lot with this later on. So I'm saying you can't look at that one statement in there 
and just know again exactly what he's ta what he's talking about. We see you laying. You in say place. what his question was. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Okay. Right. Let me just ask you a question about translation. Um, do they have in, in Greek? Does it have words like the and of? Yeah, they have the the various articles, but uh, sometimes even there, you can't. Uh, there are times when it's difficult to tell that it it, it becomes a it becomes a, the interpretation of the translator. Because see, if I was going to say refer to a person describing a person's spirit as being holy, I wouldn't use the in front of it. I would well, just I would just say he has a holy spirit or. He has a sweet spirit. You know, sweet well, it could spirit. be. What you're saying may very well be the thing. But I'm saying that let's say he's full like of, of the Holy Spirit. But really, we're going to come to where that you have a person filled with the Holy Spirit. But he's also filled with God and he's filled with Christ. And we're going to read terms like God dwells in him, Christ dwells in him, and the, and the Spirit you know, dwells in him. And then we're going to read explanations of, you know, how that takes place. But the, but the point I was making, for some reason, he laid hands on these seven. And then... I, what you're saying is, is that wouldn't necessarily be like you're saying um, that... I see what you're saying, but I guess you could also say that he's full of the Christ, full of the anointed one. So in that sense... Well, in, in this situation right here, it doesn't have the... Oh really? Okay. This particular one doesn't. No, no. Okay, I didn't realize. I didn't See, the where it's it. difficult, Mark, on, on that, and the reason it's, by the way, that the Greek is is really important. The bias of the translators, uh, in their own interpretation, shows through so many times on this area. Just like I'm saying, the the entire act of capitalizing. That's the reason is, I asked the question. Yeah. yeah I wondered. In yeah. this instance, if there was an oh, in this yeah, and in that it doesn't, Mark. Okay. When they so, do that. Okay. In that, in fact, I think that was a good point. And so, if you were reading that just in the way they had it, you would tend to think of it in the way that you said. Okay. Now, come over to chapter eight and look at uh, verse uh, four. These people are scattered. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and notice verse 6. It says, they heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs that he did. Okay? And we know that the apostles laid hands on Philip. We don't know what happened. We know for some reason that he laid hands on those seven. And now all of a sudden, for the first time, we read of somebody other than an apostle performing miracles, right? For the first time... We have someone other than the apostles performing a miracle, and it just so happens, though, he's somebody that the apostles have laid hands on. Okay? Notice again in verse 9 that there was a guy by the name of Simon who practiced sorcery. And he was amazed at all the people of Samaria, and he boasted that he was some great one. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is divine, some power. Okay, they followed him because he had amazed them. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of the Jesus, they were baptized, both men and, and Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished at great signs and miracles. All right, now we can see that sorcery 
was common at this time, right? Simon had amazed them with his sorcery. But what are we seeing here? Obviously, whatever Simon was doing fell short of what they were doing. And, and even Simon himself was amazed. But Simon was, was deceiving them into believing he was doing something miraculous, but really it was not. Uh, that they were, and Simon saw the real difference between what he was doing. Okay, then in, beginning in verse 14, uh, Brian, you want to read that 14 through uh, 18, please? Chapter 8? Yeah. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, they had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now notice, these people had been taught by Philip, right? And he's performing miraculous signs. The apostles laid hands on him. They came to believe, and they became Christians. And after they were baptized, they did not receive the Holy Spirit. Is that right? Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on them, they had simply been baptized in the name of Christ. In other words, there is no assumption that when you're baptized into Christ that the Holy Spirit comes on you. It says they had been baptized, but the Holy Spirit did not come on them. Okay? Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And then it says Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands. And he offered them money and said, give me also this, okay? It wasn't them saying they had something that nobody could see. Are these the ones that were baptized by? Philip. He was, Philip baptized them. Right. And he, Philip had, when he baptized them, it identified them as having believed and were baptized, but it states specifically they did not receive the Holy Spirit. So I'm saying that, that obviously, Acts does not teach in what we've read some, so far that when you're baptized, you automatically receive the Holy Spirit. What it did is on the day of Pentecost, it said to people that were baptized that they were to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, but it didn't tell us how they got that whole gift or what it was. Then we read that when people are baptized, they don't receive the Holy Spirit, but then the apostles come and lay hands on them, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. And then before that, they laid hands on, on Philip. Okay. There's a, a, a possible interpretation that Mark had mentioned to me at one time was that salvation could be the gift of the Holy Spirit. Is that a plausible? So far as at baptism, the right, that, that, is, that is a plausible interpretation. In other words, that... Uh, that that is, I believe personally that in Acts 2.38 that he's actually talking about these miraculous gifts. The reason I believe that is because they had just heard uh, Peter and the apostles preach. And they had saw, heard them speak in tongues and languages they hadn't learned. And then they had heard that said that this is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel. And in that prophecy it said your sons and your daughters will prophesy. 
And so here they're told that this is a fulfillment of prophet Joel. And then Peter says, you repent and be baptized and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I guess I just put myself in their place. And if I saw those miraculous gifts and was told this is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel, and then I was told I'd receive it, I would be expecting to receive, I think, that. But to say that the gift of the Holy Spirit could be something the Holy Spirit has to offer, like eternal life, that's a plausible interpretation. But there seems to be a little inconsistency because it, then it says this promise is for you and your children and for all who will believe on the Lord. And so there's... All who are far off. Okay. And so, so I mean... To me, reading that, it, it, it seems that everybody's going to receive whatever this gift that we don't understand is. Okay, but keep in mind now, in the context, we're going to find out who he's speaking of. He's going to identify those that are far off. And he's going to identify them as Gentiles. There was the Jew and the Gentile. He's not talking about distance or anything like that or, or even time. But we're going to get to the, the, those that are far off, where, where the Gentile. But the point is that whatever was involved when they received the gift of the Holy Spirit, these people here in, in the 8th chapter did not receive the Holy Spirit. And then the apostles laid hands and they received. See, what I've always had, had trouble understanding with people is that if Luke wanted to make it clear that the Holy Spirit was passed on through the laying on the apostles' hands, and you did not get it simply by being baptized, I don't know how he could have said it any plainer than what he does in those verses. You know, in other words, that they were baptized and, and they did not have the Holy Spirit. Well, let me just, so what, what you're saying is that when it says this pro, the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, and it says hyphen, for all whom the Lord our God will call when it says, for all whom the Lord our God will call, that would refer to who the Lord our God would call to receive this gift, not who the Lord our God would call to repent and to be. Well, see, in their context, Mark, I believe all that were called, and they were called, see, the issue really is salvation. That's the, the goal. What, what in, when we talk about miracles all, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, all we're ever talking about is highlighting the message. The message is salvation, and you get to the salvation by, by belief and repenting. And, and so that, that and, and then you, based on your repentance and your belief, you're, you're immersed. But I'm saying the issue is salvation itself. And so the Lord is calling all. And I'm saying that even when they had, now, now so far as these gifts, they, cost, they needed the gifts, and, and for a particular reason. Uh, they, after, like after the apostles converted these people here, they didn't have a New Testament to give them. And so, that, and yet the apostles, you just got 12 men now, and later the apostle Paul, they've got to go into the entire world of that day. And you've got millions of people Okay, and so they've got to take this message. They don't have a New Testament. Well, how did the apostles confirm the message when they spoke? Through the miraculous. These people are going to take that same message and through these gifts of the Holy Spirit, 
they're going to confirm that message. And the example of that is right there with Philip. That Philip, has, they lay hands on him, and Philip goes into Samaria and he preaches, preaches the message. But when he preaches the message, he performs miracles. And the miracles cause them to believe the message. The important thing is the message. All the world the miracles do is cause them to believe the message. And see, any, any teaching that exalts the miracle as, as an end has missed it. The end is the message. And the miracles are a means to an end. Get people to believe the message. And so then he preaches it. Well, now when Philip converts these people, he wants them to have these gifts of the Holy Spirit because he wants them to take this message and teach others. But they couldn't believe that Philip was teaching the truth unless they saw the evidence. So the apostles wanted to get down there and lay hands on them. I'm saying that anywhere there were people converted, the apostles want to get to them and lay hands on them and for them to receive these gifts because then these people can proclaim the same message and those gifts will constantly confirm their testimony and the Holy Spirit would bear witness that the message was from truth. Another passage, flip over. But on, but on Pentecost, at Pentecost, uh, Paul, there was, okay, there was Jews from, it says, every nation, you know, in the civilized world. And, and we know there was a, a mass amount of people who responded. Um, and, and so, so all these people have gone out. And if our, what we're saying is, is that, that, that people can, that people can, they could receive this miraculous Holy Spirit when the apostles laid hands on them, then what would happen in this instance is that these people, let's say that the, the apostles laid hands on all these people and they received this miraculous Holy Spirit. When they went to the, each of their nations, then they would be like Philip. They would be able. They would be able to teach and confirm, but they couldn't pass it on. Mm -hmm. Okay, but but then this says this promise is for you and your children for all who are far off. So those those people far off in that instance wouldn't be receiving that gift. Well, the far. See, I don't believe we'll, we're going to get to that. The far off is not talking about distance. That's not what's it talking. About? It's talking about the Gentiles. And we're, going to, and we're going to get the explanation of that. See, well, that's the problem. When we get into it, the Gentiles will be identified as those that were afar off. And see, but no, we're not talking about distance out there. That the, the, the Gentiles are the ones that, that are, from the Jews' standpoint, they're not even distant kin to God. And, and the message is going out to them also. And the miraculous gifts will be passed on. And, and we're going to get to the point where, the, in fact, to show you that the Jew had no understanding that the Gentile would get this, it would take a miracle to get Peter to even preach to Cornelius in Acts 10. And then after he preached to them, the Holy Spirit would be poured out. And then he looked at his fellow Jews and said, can we now forbid the water? to baptize these people that have received the Holy Spirit. But it lets us know that they were saying to Peter, we're not going to baptize these guys. You know, we shouldn't even be here. Partly the Holy Spirit falls, and he looks over and says, now which one of you guys want to forbid the water now? You know, that God is, 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 is speaking there. And so now, those that are far off, in fact... Uh, but you know, that's another, we another get, example of where when you read through the first time, 
You certainly think of it that way, because I do too. For yeah. A long time. Uh, well, the, let me see. Uh, Turn over to Ephesians. Where's your place there? And when you get Ephesians. through with that, Paul, you might want to break. Okay, and then we'll continue. I think that'll be good. After we get to this, we'll take a break and then continue to discuss. I knew that we'd run short on, on time. That's uh, that's why uh, Ephesians 2, I think I got the right place here. Ephesians 2 and verse, uh, yeah, look at Ephesians 2 beginning verse 11. And uh, let's see, uh, Carol, verse 11, would okay. you read verse 11 through verse 13? Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcised, by which is what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus you were once far off and have been made near by the blood of Christ. Okay. See what he's talking about? The Gentiles, they're, they're far off in the sense they're totally separated from God in their sin. Well, see, the Jew had the sacrificial system and, and all the promises and all, so they were near God. And the Gentiles are far off because of sin, but now they've been brought near. And I'm saying that in the, in the context here, that those that are far off, they don't even understand it at that time. You know, that it, it, but it's, it's the Gentile. It has nothing to do with distance. Well, what's going to happen now, they will, the, the reason the apostles even wanted to constantly be traveling and moving and all, is they wanted to constantly be laying hands so these people could receive gifts. And for lack of time, I'll quote another passage rather than go. In Romans 1 and verse 11, Paul wanted to come to Rome that he might impart some spiritual gift to them. And then in 2, Peter, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 6, he said, Timothy, uh, fan of the flame, the gift that was given you through the laying out of my hands. And so he tells Timothy about this gift of the Spirit that he has through the laying out of his hands. And this gift that they had, had to be exercised through their faith. Like when Jesus gave the apostles the power to perform miracles, the first time they tried it, they failed because they didn't have faith in the authority he gave them. And in the same way, Timothy apparently because of the persecution and the hardship and all, has become timid. And Paul's really writing Timothy to, to tell him to, to fan afresh the faith that he has. Get out there and go to work, is what he's saying. And then he reminds him that he has a gift that's in him through the laying on of his hands. But another time that will come up, we'll get to the 19th chapter, and we'll have some Gentiles that will not have the gifts of the Holy Spirit until Paul lays, lays hands on them. And I'm saying that what we have is a plain statement that they do not receive the Holy Spirit even though they've been baptized. And it was only through the laying on of the apostles' hands that they received the gift. Now, from that, one statement, then we'll go on to refreshments and, and talk on later. The idea that has been propagated that there is something called an ordinary gift of the Holy Spirit, that you, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit 
you don't have any miraculous thing at all, but yet the Holy Spirit is in you and causing you to do things and all like that. That is something that is not known to the New Testament. The reason for the Spirit was to give truth and to confirm that truth. And, and to just be in people and to cause them to do things in some way. I'm saying there's no statement like that within the, within the Scriptures. It all had to do with the real availing of truth. And the same with the, when it comes to being godly. The teaching that the Spirit, in some mystical way, helps you to be godly, separate from information. Paul made the statement that he had to buffet his own body and put it into subjection, fear that after preaching to others that he would be a castaway. But what happens to us, we are led by the Spirit. We have intelligence. We have our conscience. And so what happens to you if, if you're sincere and you believe in God and you have conscience and you learn something that you know God wants you to do? What do you feel like doing? Do it. Do it. You feel compelled to do it. Once you learn, that's why we preach from the pulpit. We, we're preaching to people that we know believe in God and believe in Jesus, and we're wanting them to do something. And so if we're wanting them to be more evangelistic or we're wanting them to be more holy or whatever, we know that if these people are sincere, that if we can get that information into their conscience, then they're going to feel compelled to do it. Well, is the Spirit causing them to be compelled to do that and all? Yes, but it's not in a mystical way. The sword of the Spirit is what? The Word of God. The Word of God. And so the Spirit gives the Word. The job of the Holy Spirit is to give the information and to confirm the information. But the effect on the human heart is the Word. And by the effect on the human heart being the Word, man's free will is never infringed on in any way. That, uh, that he's, got, he's got the Word. And, and, and yes, we, anytime, a, anytime a person that believes in Christ believes that something is right through that information, he feels compelled to do it. And just like, uh, let's say that uh, uh, Brian here is, has no thoughts whatsoever about going to Russia and preaching the gospel. And then all of a sudden he gets thoughts about going to Russia and preach the gospel. So he says the spirit he feels is, is moving him. And, and, he, and, he, and he's right. But what has really happened is, Brian believes the gospel ought to be preached to all mankind. And so he's been reading that the gospel is bearing fruit in Russia, but there's a shortage of preachers. That we've got thousands of people willing to study, and very few are willing to go. And so then Brian, he's sincere, he's conscientious, and so his conscience gets to dealing with him. Well then, is that the spirit? Yes. But it's the Spirit through the Word, not in some mystical sense. And see, if, if that's properly understood, then the emphasis is put on the Word. And people are encouraged to study the Word. When people put the emphasis on the fact that the Holy Spirit in some mystical way is doing something, then there's no need to really study the Word. You go around thinking the Holy Spirit is guiding you in some way. And, 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 and I don't know how many unstudied preachers I've heard got up and get up and make statements like the Spirit has laid something on their heart, you know. That and, what, and what comes out is what we read over in Jeremiah, you know, their own dreams and their own imagination and their own thinking. If it didn't come out of here, the Spirit didn't lay it on their heart. It's just that simple. When this, and if the Spirit lays something on their heart that's not in here, what's he going to do to make sure that they know it's from the Spirit? 
Okay, it's going to, and that, if it's in there, it's going to confirm it with the miraculous. And, and so, if, and that's the only way we can know. The people that prayed it, that they call for the people, for the elders, and and from, that they lay on hands. That's mm -hmm. that's not right, is it? Okay. What happens there? That's, that's a good it did question. In the Bible, but it doesn't do any good. Well, you want to break and then come back and answer that question just because I got things hot? Yeah, we'll just, that's, yeah, we'll go ahead. That's a good question. What what he's saying, again, remember, we identify that all of these people that receive these letters, like in James, are living in a time when the apostles are laying these hands on people and parting these miraculous gifts. And so, yes, they could call for the elders, and they could pray over them, and they could experience healing. They had the miraculous gift of healing. And the, but the purpose in healing was yeah, not to heal. That was in right. the Testament. Yeah, but I'm saying the reason we don't have the apostles to lay hands on anybody today, but see, there was a reason behind it. All of those miraculous things that happened was to constantly convince them that this message was from God. The, what about, let's say this guy's sick and they call the apostles and they pray and they lay hands on him and he gets well. What's going to happen to this guy in a few years? He's going to die. He's going to die. He's going to get sick on something else. So in other words, if they're going to take life that you can get rid of any illness by doing that, then we should never die. We just keep calling for the elders coming laying. So obviously the only reason for that was to confirm and prove that that message was from God. And, and once that we would have it confirmed and have the completed Bible, then there would be no need for that. It served its purpose. The, the end was never the miracles. The miracles' job was to confirm this message and prove it was from God. Okay, let's pause. I was going to ask you, well, I've got several questions, but one, you know, back to this Acts 2.38, uh -huh. you know, we skip the Spirit. Well, in Galatians, in Galatians 3:14, right, it says he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now, is this that is talking about in Galatians called the promise of the Spirit? Is it the same thing as the gift of the Spirit in Acts 2:38? I believe the promise of the Spirit is what he's talking about there. That that. He's talking about the promise that was made to Abraham. And really, the promise, there is there's all kinds of promises. But the promise uh, of the Bible is the promise that goes back that there's going to come one from the seed of woman to conquer Satan. And it, it starts in the garden. It comes all the way through, and it's promised to Abraham. And... Abraham and, and, and like the Hebrew writer would mention, they believe that promise of God. And that's what he has reference to there. But I think and his whole thing is from a context concerning, you know, that promise that was made to Abraham over there. But I believe that is a great, the thing of it is with the promise of the Spirit made by like Joel or anything, anything dealing with the Spirit and the gifts was always a means to an end. The, the Going back to the very first, when man sinned, the end has always been the salvation of man. Uh, when he sinned, he he broke his relationship with God, and every single solitary thing that God has done has been done, designed to bring man back reconciled and at one with his Creator, and to give him eternal life. 
and, and everything else is uh, everything else is just uh, a means towards that that particular end. See, my problem even with some of the things within, like the uh, the Pentecostal or some in the charismatic movements in the church or wherever, is that not only do I believe they're they're having misunderstanding on that, but they are exalting the means rather than the end. The end is Christ and salvation. And there's a tendency to exalt. And, and another thing, even all groups, as they start to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit, and they get these thoughts about the Holy Spirit and all, that it, it's like to me after that goes on for a period of time, it just grows and grows. And then all of a sudden, what is getting exalted is the Spirit. And see, I'm... Well, I'm not sure. I, a, a new one of the new songs that I don't feel comfortable with is that we we love God and we love Son, and, and then we turn around and praise the Spirit. You know, as if you've got uh, uh, number one. I don't know of a single solitary thing where you worship that way in the Bible. It's always God and through Christ, and 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 there's nothing there to worship like the Holy Spirit. I believe the Holy Spirit is God. That holy is, is just an adjective modified, and so we're talking about God. But the way we use it sometimes, we use it like a third person. Well, it goes back to the Trinity and, right. and all that. And right. See, I don't believe the Trinity. That I believe there, yes. but I think that it's so ingrained in people's mind. You don't, you know, they don't. I don't feel there's any harm or anything like that, other than. Where they would really, getting back to the devil's advocate bit, a lot of things the Trinitarians say that if they were sitting down talking to a Muslim or a Jew, they could not back up what they say. I mean, they they really, they they tell them it, it sounded silly to them, you know, that you you've got really three gods, three separate three separate personalities. Okay. Well, let me let me leave that and ask you another question. In Acts chapter eight. Verse 26. Okay, still with Philip. Right. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, right. Go south the road, okay. So here you got an angel of the Lord speaking to Philip, who's filled with the Spirit. Hmm. Now it doesn't say the Spirit said to him. Okay, now a little bit later it does. In 29 it says, The Spirit told Philip. But now it's, this isn't the Holy Spirit, it's the Spirit. And if it wasn't capitalized, you know, in this in this book down here, word says the Holy right. Spirit. He's saying that that word, the Spirit, said to Philip, is referring back to the angel of the Lord back in verse 26. So, so now you got a man that's filled with the Holy Spirit, quote unquote, whatever that means. But an angel of the Lord tells him to go do something. Mm -hmm. Okay. Why, why did the Holy Spirit not tell Philip to go? Okay. <laughs> Uh, but notice now, in no. that context, he's using it interchangeably, right? Well, he's using the angel Lord. Okay, now hold hold that for just a second before you respond. Okay, now in chapter ten, verse three, right? It says one day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. Mm -hmm. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, "Cornelius." Okay, now this is Cornelius, and not. He's not been filled with the Spirit, but he's seen an angel. But, you know, this is the same time. But, 
in on down in chapter 10 verse uh, let's see 13 says then a voice told him this is Peter get up Peter kill and eat surely not Lord Peter replied I've never eaten anything the voice spoke to him a second time do not call anything impure that God has made clean okay so here uh, you've got an angel speaking to Cornelius Peter's hearing a voice Peter's filled with the spirit but he's still hearing this voice, but it's not identified, the voice is not identified as the Spirit or the Holy Spirit or whatever. And so, you know, how, to, how does that fit in with the understanding of the Holy Spirit and, and I mean, why would God be using the angels when he could be using the Holy Spirit and how does all that come together? Okay, the word angel itself is a Greek word, okay, angelos. It literally means messenger. And sometimes in the Bible, when, when, as a result of them putting an angel, that see a lot of times uh, messengers are just simply even a, a human being that's a messenger. But, but, but because the translator uses the word angel, they think of it as a heavenly being. And the context will have to tell you whether we're talking about a specific heavenly being or just a messenger from God. And like, remember in Revelation, he writes to the angel of such and such church, just the messenger of, the, of, of that church. So I'm saying that first of all, always when you read angel, just think of it's, it's, it's another one of those words they didn't translate. It should be just messenger of God. And it's angelos. And uh, the, uh, the context will have to tell you whether we're speaking of a spiritual being are just simply a messenger of God that may even be another human being. The spirit could be a messenger, the, the messenger of God. In another parallel is in the Old Testament, uh, when you read about God speaking to Moses through the burning bush, and then you read about the angel speaking. Well, again, they're used synonymous. And see, what I believe there is that the messenger of God is speaking, but, but he's representing God. And so it's synonymous to say, and then Moses later on, the other writers will sometimes say God, sometimes say the angel, and sometimes say Moses. And, and so, it, but they are all, it's all the same message. Well, I believe it's from God through the messenger and then to Moses and, and out. And in the context you mentioned that there's a possibility that the, that the actual messenger itself you know, is the spirit that, uh, you know, it's just a synonymous type thing. Because from his standpoint, as he writes, he's really writing a Greek word, angelus, that means messenger. But the reason, again, that's just, that's just a possible interpretation because the, there, there are spiritual messengers of God. And this is like the ministering spirits that would... Uh, aid us that are inheriting salvation, Hebrews 1, 13 and 14. And we had all the way through in the Old Testament, uh, they had the Holy Spirit revealing in the Old Testament, like David spoke with the Spirit. But at the same time, you have the Spirit revealing, and Moses had the Spirit, and he passed it on to the 70, and he passed on to Joshua. But then by the same token, it specifically speaks of individual messengers. And then you have like uh, Daniel is an inspired prophet, but then he has a vision and angels or messengers of God speak to him. And so 
there, there is a possibility that was a, that he was just a specific messenger, or he could be referring to the spirit. And I, personally, I don't know how anybody could be dogmatic on that, you know. And and I think like Peter, he definitely saw a vision, and it was an angel or a messenger of God that actually talked with him. But I don't think there's anything there to define the the inspiration. Okay, and this word inspiration, like when we talk about the spirit, when the angel spoke, you have the angel is actually using words, and they're hearing those actual words. But when the, the spirit is speaking, this word, uh, born along by the Holy Spirit, like he said, holy men spoke, is a removed by the Holy Spirit, and, and no prophecy of Scripture, you know, is, is, is given except by this. That word, born along, or carried by the Holy Spirit, is exactly the same word like you'd have in um, Acts 27 and verse 17, where it spoke of the ship in Paul's wreck being born or carried along by the sea. And so, when we know when we read from these inspired writers that we're reading their personality, we're reading their syntax, and so much so that we know the difference between Paul's writings and Peter's writings, and, 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 and all of them have their own distinctive personality. So obvious that's the case, the Holy Spirit is not dictating individual words there. It's, it's like that they're being born along and they're carried, their own mind, their vocabulary is being used, and then the process, I just don't believe that, that we, I don't believe they fully understood it. And, and the best example I know of that is, um, let me get this big breath now. Over here in uh, Galatians, we know that Paul was inspired, and uh, turn over to Galatians, and uh, he's been preaching the gospel, and He's been uh, teaching that you didn't have to be circumcised, that the law of Moses has uh, been nailed to the cross and all of this. And beginning the second chapter, he says, 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and I took Titus. I went up in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel. But I did, notice now, but I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised. Okay, so here's Paul, who's been preaching under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and confirming the message with miracles. But obviously, from Paul's standpoint, he's speaking out of his mind and out of his understanding and out of his study. And remember, Paul says he got the message directly from Jesus. But yet he's been carried along by the Holy Spirit. But to show, I think what shows here, Paul himself was having difficulty trying to comprehend all this. And so he says he goes up in fear that he had preached in vain. In other words, he, even though he was teaching that you didn't have to be circumcised and keep the law, and that was his understanding, he obviously has an element of doubt in his mind. And there's the possibility I'm wrong here because he's, what he's doing He's teaching something that he's never believed before, and he doesn't know anybody else that teaches it. And so even though the miracles are there, and he feels compelled to teach that, and that's what his understanding is saying, he still has this element of doubt. You, you see this, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet when Jesus didn't start doing what John thought he ought to do as soon, he, he began to have doubt. 
And he said, and said, are you really the one or not? Well, Paul, it seems to me, has some doubt there. And, and, he, and it's just like he goes and then yeah, Titus doesn't have to be circumcised. He just feels relieved. And then, and then he went ahead and mentioned that he realized now that, that Peter was given the gospel for the Jew and, and him the Gentile. So my own feeling on that is that when I look at, at how even the gospel writers can take the same statement of truth by Jesus and use different words. And you can have something like even the, the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, Luke and Matthew will, will rearrange. Matthew will have a different arrangement of the same materials. And that sometimes when they record a miracle or an instance or something, they will say it in different words and in a different way. And when I read Paul's instructions to Timothy to pick elders and his instructions to Titus, he says one thanks to one, he doesn't say to the other. He says the same thing in different words. The indication to my mind is not of someone who's dictating every word, but in some way, these guys are studying the scriptures and they've been taught by Jesus. And in some way, they're being borne along by the Holy Spirit and so that the, the, what is inspired is the message. And the end result is this inspired scripture and the miracles are constantly there. And then from our standpoint, we're looking at it. I don't have that miracle other than the record of it by people that were willing to, to die for what they believe. But what I can see is the same thing they experienced in that meeting. Here are Peter and Paul coming from two totally different backgrounds. One of them's been with Jesus. The other one hasn't. And they're preaching exactly the same message. And the question is, how can that be? And so then I have to say, I don't understand the mechanics involved because I'm dealing with the Creator. But I know that they're inspired of God because there's no way to explain that. And so when I see Peter and Paul and, and all those guys preaching the same harmonious, complimentary message, and yet no one of them understood it before, it's contrary to what every one of them believed. My mind looks for that is, in all honesty, with as much amazement as if I saw a blind man given his sight. Now, only this is better. Because if I saw a blind man given his sight, I couldn't show that to somebody else out there, that I'd have to duplicate it, duplicate it, duplicate it, you know. But this, I can actually take what we're talking about, and with this completed volume we have, and I can show it to any thinking person that will sit down, you know, and reason. Well, this, this example you used in Galatians 2, where Paul was in fear, that seems that would fly in the face of what a lot of people believe on the leading of the Spirit today, because what people today claim that the Spirit does for them, it didn't do for Paul. Right? Did not do, right. It did not do for Paul, That's because right. he's you know, he's saying, oh, he's in fear that he's not been preaching the gospel, you know, that he's in error somehow or another. And then these people today are claiming that the Holy Spirit keeps them from being in error. Right, right. And then same thing with John the Baptist. You know, it would have, that just, I mean, it's a contradiction. Right? Why does Jesus have to perform, John the Baptist, it states plainly he's filled with the Spirit. And, and when he speaks that, and, and I believe, by the way, that, that was some excellent statements in that book, you know, that, that's really, really good. 
I believe that what has happened is not the spirit is inside that body or anything like that, but then when John preaches, he's being empowered uh, by the spirit and all. And yet, John, it took miracles to convince him uh, on the other. And it, it's evidence that what the spirit did is empower them to speak the truth and confirm the truth and everything like that. But so far as doing anything mystical to help them understand or anything like that, it didn't. And, and like you said, so far as them having some kind of element within them that guaranteed that they wouldn't misunderstand it or something, that's not so. Okay, this leads into the next question too. Is it like in Corinth, the church of Corinth? They had a lot of problems there. A lot of misunderstandings, a lot of wrong practices. And then the Holy Spirit was still empowering those people to do miraculous works, right? I mean, they were practicing the gifts of the Spirit, but then they were error on the practices, and so the Holy Spirit wasn't actually correcting all those things. And so they were, in other words, through the laying on of the apostles' hands, they had been empowered. They obviously had the faith that they had those. In other words, see, there was no doubt in their mind they had those gifts, and that comes out. It's like they're, all, they're proud of it. And it's like that they're kind of showing out what's coming across. They're all wanting to talk, and they're all wanting to perform. And and when Paul makes a statement that each gift was for the good of all, and none is greater and everything like it, it's like that the guy that can do one thing maybe has exalted himself over the other. Okay, well, let me ask this. Is the gift of the Spirit then like a gift that I would give you that if I give it to you, then you can use it? pretty much any way you want to? No. Did it, did no. Yeah, I think they can use it any way they want to because that, uh, but yet it depends on like when Timothy had the gift, Paul was actually telling him to fan it afresh. That apparently Timothy had had slipped back and he's, he's down. Timothy's actually down when Paul's writing these letters. And he's wanting him to regenerate himself. You know, in other words, the use of this gift I believe they had the gift of the Spirit, just like remember when they, they, they couldn't heal the first time they tried because they didn't have enough faith. I believe the gift of the Spirit to them was like prayer is to us, that we know we have the power of prayer as a Christian, but that that power is contingent on our faith. And, and we're told very plainly that to pray to God without believing and trusting that, that if that's in keeping with God's will, He's going to answer it, there's not going to be the very nature of what the way God reveals. And so our power is contingent. And I think they had the power to do that All right now. Is my power in prayer contingent on my being a perfect person? You see, it, it's not. It's contingent upon my faith and my striving. Well, when he's writing to the Corinthians, and, and we look at their sins as just being terrible, but keep in mind there's going to be a lot of repenting take place in Corinth. But keep in mind who he's writing to. These are not people that you, I don't think you would have found a group of Jews behaving like those people. Well, these are people that have been brought up in idolatry and, and polygamy and divorce and adultery, all it's homosexuality, all it's been part of their life. Uh, they lie, they cheat, they steal, you know, and they, and they have all these weird things through their idolatrous practice and they've been brought up that way. They have these priestess that they, fornicate with in worship and so all of a sudden they're converted to Christ 
But when they're converted all those years, it's like this guy, it's like the sailor that you've just converted to Jesus, and he's been cussing all these years. I'd say he's going to cuss some more. And, he, and, and it'll gradually get better, and it's going to slip. And this is why also, see, I think the Corinthians are good in the sense that that there's no problem here because the, the church, we've not reached anybody here in the world or anything in a long time. But it, it teaches patience with people that come from a different background that a lot of times people that have been brought up in a real immoral background, that they can act in a way that we think is terrible, and yet they may have come as far as we have come. Right. You know, and I think that may be the church chance. It, well, the thing well then, here's where I'm wanting. <clears throat> I guess the question I've got now is that, okay, we look at Corinth. They had the gifts of the Spirit, and they were practicing them. They had all these wrong things known in the practice and all. Okay, compare that to, say, a Pentecostal group today. Okay, they claim to have the gifts of the Spirit, but they're not practiced to the degree. Okay, you don't see the, the real miraculous. Right. right. And so, you know, it, what, what would be the contrast between a Pentecostal group today and the I mean, how would you know that the Pentecostal group today didn't have the gifts of the Spirit compared to Corinth? Where, okay. Where's the okay, the first thing I'd point out to a Pentecostal group is Paul tells you that those gifts at Corinth were passed on by him. And he reminds them that all the miracles of an apostle was wrought among them in 2 Corinthians 12, 12 and said that you don't come behind any of the other churches in, in gifts and all. And so, in same with the Galatians, he lets you know that those miraculous came from him. So, those miracles came from the apostles and through the laying on of their hands and all, and for a particular reason. The next thing is that the, the gifts they had were obvious miracles. There, there, there was nothing that, what did I read today that, you know, I was reading something and bang, you know, it was, it was a miracle that it happened. Of course it wasn't, you know. But I mean it was actually the person was making it as a truthful statement. There's no way this could have happened without it being a miracle. <clears throat> the first thing I talked with also with the Pentecostals is their definition of miracle. By definition a miracle has to circumvent the laws of nature. It, it could never be a, how could it be a sign it's from God if it operates within the law of nature. So if, if you're going to heal somebody there can be no possibility that it's psychosomatic or anything. It, it, it has to be obvious. Now, if somebody is blind because of something organically wrong with his eyes and bang, he sees, then that's a miracle. If this guy's paralyzed, we all know that if you, if you even lay in bed for a year, you can't walk. Your, your muscles are, are all gone. So if he can just leap and jump and he's whole immediately, obviously there's, that's a miracle. And the miracles that were practiced there weren't just speaking in tongues and interpretations. It was a lot of the miraculous. Right. And, and he, in fact, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, he enumerates all the gifts. And, and they fall into two categories. Some of, the, some of the gifts involve giving of information, and some of them involve the confirmation of that information. And just like you've got one guy that has the gift of prophecy, but how do I know that he's not pulling it right off the top of his head? Well, it's because this guy with the gift of healing or the gift of miracles or the gift of tongues and interpretation, 